I, I had one of my peers say to me, he said, I don't care if you were like the top candidate at Gagetown. You didn't earn it. You shouldn't be here. And nobody wants you here. You know, and there you are by yourself, you know, like this is this is week two in the regiment and, you know, having a beer after work with the guys. And it's like, uh, like, what do you say to that? Hi, I'm Shannon Busta and welcome to season two of For Her Country, a podcast produced by the True Patriot Love Foundation and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund. Over the course of this series, we'll explore lessons in leadership from inspirational female leaders from across Canada's armed forces, all in honor of fallen Canadian military hero, Captain Nicola Goddard. The clip you just heard is from a discussion with retired Lieutenant Colonel Anne Reifenstein. Anne was one of Canada's first female artillery officers, and she faced a number of challenges in the early years of gender integration in the Army. Women have played an integral role in Canada's military for more than a century. In World War I, thousands of nurses contributed to the war effort. And in World War II, our military was forever changed when we established our first women's forces, which enabled women to serve in uniform for the first time in Canadian history. And serve they did. They filled a number of roles during the war, including mechanics, parachute riggers, wireless operators, clerks, and photographers. But for most of our history, women were not allowed in combat roles. Things began to change in the 80s after Parliament passed the Canadian Human Rights Act and the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Finally, in 1989, women were permitted to take on combat roles in the Canadian Armed Forces. There was, however, still one barrier that remained in the Navy. It wasn't until the year 2000 that women were finally allowed to serve on submarines. Over the past 30 years, Canada's Armed Forces has been working not only to lift barriers to entry, but to actively encourage women to enlist. 1989 might sound pretty recent to some of you. It did to me when I first started working on this podcast. But one of the more surprising things that I've learned is that many of our allies have only begun allowing women into frontline positions relatively recently, meaning Canada is quite literally decades ahead of our allies when it comes to gender integration. And as we'll learn today, that integration has not always been a smooth process. So as we've learned more about Canada opening up combat rules to women, we wanted to get a sense of what those early days were really like for the trailblazers who were among the first women to join the forces and help it evolve. And so our guest today is one of those trailblazers, retired Lieutenant Colonel Anne Reifenstein. Anne had a long and successful career in the military, and the work she did has helped pave the way for generations of women to follow. Anne also had the opportunity to instruct and to mentor Captain Nicola Goddard, and we'll hear a bit about their friendship today. And we reach Anne in Belgium today. Anne, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you on the program. I'd like to start off our conversation as I often do, and that's by asking, how did you find your way into a career in the military? It was a long time ago, right? So I joined in 1989, and I joined right after the human rights decision where they opened up the combat arms to women. That implies that I knew or infers that I knew what I was getting into. Yeah, 
not a Scooby. Like I had no idea what I was doing. You know, it was just like, oh, I'm going to go in the army and I'm going to run around and yell, follow me boys. And people do that. You know, I like, I'd watch movies like everybody else. I've been in cadets and I've been in the reserves and I thought, oh, well, you know, I really enjoyed those experiences. I'll really enjoy the regular force. Um, I had dropped out of university, you know, the education thing at that point wasn't working for me. You know, I was doing all sorts of things. So I thought, hey, the army's a great way to get out and see the world. I wanted to have an adventure. And that's what I figured that if I joined the army and particularly if I joined the combat arms, um, I would have that adventure. That seems like a pretty bold decision to be making at that time. Going in, were you thinking about the fact that you were going to be one of the first women in combat arms? I was. I knew there wouldn't be a lot of women. I just actually thought there would be more as time went on. I really didn't have a sound understanding of what I was signing up to do, but I was very insistent that that's what I wanted to do. At the recruiters, they they basically said, do you really want to do this? And they brought in actually a couple of infantry officers from the local battalion to convince me not to do this. And I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I was, work, I was working, you know, I'd worked in predominantly male environments before, and I was working construction at that point in time. So I thought, oh, how different could it be? Yeah, pretty different. But, you know, hey. And so those early years, what were they actually like for you? One, you don't know what you don't know, right? So I had no frame of reference. Like there was no, you know, so you didn't see anybody else doing this. So it was really good in one ways because I was kind of forging my own path and there was no one to like, you know, say, oh, you can't do that or you can't do that. Um, however, it was really hard at times because I had thought if you kind of, I thought the training was going to be the hard part. So if you got through the training, everything else was going to be okay. Because, because once you're qualified and you showed, you know, demonstrated that you could do the job, then all the rest of the stuff shouldn't matter. And that really wasn't what happened. Um, it was a little bit, there was a lot of people who were very, very unhappy to see me show up at the unit. Um, you know, they didn't want women wrecking the way it had always been. It, it introduced something new to the dynamic that a lot of people were really uncomfortable with. And this is after a lot of reflection. I, I certainly didn't have this understanding when I was going through it. At the time, it was just, it was a bit lonely. Um, I was very isolated. I was in Shiloh, Manitoba. You know, there weren't very many women around at all. Certainly not a lot of single women, you know, not a lot of women my age. And uh, I was kind of on my own a great deal. My peers really weren't um, terribly accepting, you know, and uh, the soldiers and the senior NCOs on the whole were really great. You know, they were, they did care. They, they cared how you did your job um, and on the whole were quite supportive, but you know, my peers, not so much. That sounds like it must've been really lonely. What did the day-to-day -day interactions look and feel like with your colleagues? So there was a, a fair amount of initial harassment, but, you know, it, the difficulty was, is there was no normative for me to compare with. Like, was this harassment because I was a junior officer and all junior officers are treated with some, uh, certainly at that time, were treated with some, you know, like kind of, yeah, they're there, you know, and, and played tricks on him, you know, kind of sent out to do silly things. And, you know, like, it's just part of the ritual of fitting in, right, growing up in the regiment. But uh, there were times when it was really, it was really hard. Like the, um, there were times when it was very specific. I, I had one of my peers say to me, he said, I don't care if you were like the top candidate at Gagetown. You didn't earn it. You shouldn't be here. And nobody wants you here. 
you know, and there you are by yourself, you know, like this is, this is week two in the regiment, you know, having a beer after work with the guys. And it's like, uh, like, what do you say to that? Oh my God. That that's devastating. How did you recover? Well, I, you know what? I was, I was really, really, I, I just, I just thought they needed to be convinced, you know, so just work hard, do your stuff. Don't make a fuss. Make sure you don't bring up any of that female stuff, you know, make sure, you know, you're just one of the guys. And it actually took me about 18 months after I arrived at the unit to really understand that there's nothing I could do that would make them change their minds. And once that happened, that was actually, I know it sounds awful, but it wasn't. It was actually a little bit, it was kind of like, okay, I can just be me and do me, you know? And I was, and I did. And you know what? I found my groove. Like I found, you know, a space that I was pretty comfortable with. You know, a friend of mine, I had a roommate, she was female. It was, you know, I had someone to hang out with and watch movies with on a Friday night kind of thing. So it was just, it was, it was okay. You know, it was okay. And I, and I didn't know any better. Like I look back, you know, and I go, oh, why did I not quit? But, but it was a different army then. It was a very different army then. You know, it was very old army, not new army. And, and new army is way better. So obviously you didn't quit. Can you take us through a quick timeline of your career? So I had kind of two stages to my career. My first 15 years, I think, in the military, I would say it was very field and operational focus. So I was either in units or on bases or um, so I was, I, I did the, the roles in the regiment, right? All the junior officer roles in the artillery. So that goes from being a gun line officer where you're running around shooting guns to uh, a forward observation officer calling in fire. Um, you know, uh, an adjutant, you know, so basically being the HR person for the regiment, you know, um, being a battery commander. So I had a subunit under my command, you know, that I was able to, 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 to direct that fire and support one of the infantry battalions. So I did all of those roles. I was with one Canadian division headquarters in Kingston, which was a deployable headquarters. So we went on a number of deployments in the U.S. and overseas. Um, and then... About 2005, I ended my, at the end of my subunit command, and my kids were uh, three and five. And my husband and I are both in the military. And by that point, I, you know, that was kind of kids first now. Kids first. We had, we had a couple of really <laughs> tough years. <laughs> I look back at now and go, oh, what were you thinking? You know, and I look at the kids and go, oh, doesn't look like any permanent damage was done. You know, like they seem okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, so 2005, we kind of went, I, I moved to what I would call the institutional military. So I went to the Royal Military College and I was on staff there, first as a division commander and then the chief instructor. From there, I went to staff college in Toronto, did a year of professional development and did a master's degree. Then I went to um, Ottawa, and there I worked in strategic resource management in the chief of program under the vice chief of defense staff. So I was working in, you know, business planning and organization establishment and sexy MBA stuff like that. Then I did my MBA. <laughs> and then I was really fortunate. I got sent down to um, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, to be the Canadian exchange officer and teach at Army University the uh, U.S. Command and General Staff College. I wow. spent three years doing that, and that was super fun. 
And uh, then I came back, worked at the Canadian Forces College, doing um, directing staff, doing some te lecturing, and then some curriculum development, and then I retired. So the first half was very operationally focused, and the second half was very institutionally focused. So more, more organizational structure, corporate type of things in business terms. It really sounds like you've had a ton of exposure to the many sides of the armed forces. I've seen a lot of it. I've seen a lot of it, uh, and 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 I'm interested in a lot of it. Like it's it's really been fascinating watching the leadership change and evolve, and certainly leadership how it's changed at the you know um, the operational level, like the you know the field force level, and actually at the institutional level. And the changes have been really really dramatic like it's not a small change it's these are big big changes in a generation and it's really fascinating and can you tell us a bit more about that what have those changes actually meant for the troops on the ground it was a lot less it, it went from a very um patriarchal very top heavy decisions made here don't question go very directive style of leadership very directive style of of um you know going forward don't ask dumb questions, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what to think kind of thing, you know, <laughs> to uh, very consultative, very engaged, um, very two-way on the leadership. So the followers started being taken into consideration. And the rise of this in the doc military professional development side of the house is the idea of the strategic corporal. The strategic corporal is that the guy on the ground is the one who's going to make a strategic decision. He can have a strategic impact. And I think when that people started to understand that. They started to realize that not only could he have an impact, but he could really have a positive impact if we engage, if we talk, if we get that in place. And so it, I'm not saying that it's not a hierarchical institution anymore. It most definitely is. Um, it, and I'm not saying that it's not risk averse, because it is. But I would suggest that the leadership are far more open to outside ideas, and it's much less insular. I remember when in the early 90s, we just wanted people to leave us alone so we could do our military thing. Like there was no interaction with the Canadian public. There was no understanding or anything else like that. And now it's just so much more um, engaged, you know? And, and, and I, think that's, I think that's a real step in the positive direction. And, and women, I think that's a lot of that, you know, the Canadian forces taking a real effort to reflect what the Canadian public looks like, you know, that that's a huge step to understand the value of that, I think is really, really changed the nature of leadership. That sounds like a change that many organizations are grappling with right now, figuring out how to better reflect the world that they're operating in. So I'd like to rewind things a little bit and dig into the first half of your career. I'd love to hear about your first deployment experience. I, I didn't do a lot of deployments um, just because time and place. It wasn't because I didn't want to go and it wasn't because I wasn't selected. It just, I wasn't in the right spot at the right time. Um, so I went to Cyprus with the regiment and that was under the old army rules. Um, and that is United Nations peacekeeping mission that we were involved in. We were like the 58th tour, Op Snow Goose 58. So that tells you something about the stability of that particular mission. Can I just pause you there? Can you give us a quick overview of what Canada was doing in Cyprus? And you mentioned that you were on the 58th tour. Can you help us understand what having so many tours says about a mission? Sure. So um, the United Nations went into Cyprus, which is a, a partitioned island in the Mediterranean. 
um, Cypriot Turk on one side and Cypriot Greek on the other. And um, there have been continuous issues. And then in the early 70s, a war broke out between the two parties and they ended up coming to a steady state where the island was separated by what they call the green line. And it's basically, literally on the map, a green kind of stripe that goes through the center of the island, separating the two populations. And so didn't matter where you were originally from, um, the Greeks were on the south side and the Cypriot Turks were on the north side. And, you know, there was um, support from the mainland Greece and support from mainland Turkey for both of these two factions. The United Nations went in and um, separated them and there were contingents of troops that rotated through to ensure the integrity of the zone of separation in order to prevent any further violence from breaking out. And how old were you on this deployment? Uh, 26. So pretty young. Oh yeah, yeah. This was my first kind of big go. Um, I was not allowed to go on the line as a platoon commander. That would have been kind of the normal fit for me, but they didn't think that um, the Turks would negotiate with a woman. They just assumed that, that a woman wouldn't be able to do that job. So I went in as the transport officer initially, and then I became the information officer, which in UN speak means the intelligence officer. So how did the deployment end up going for you? Um, it was really interesting. It was a lot of fun. The level of harassment was, was, was fabulously high in terms of sexual harassment. <laughs> Um, not from the local population, but from my peers and from various things. Um, it was like a lot of, that, that was really weird. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the way it went. Uh, it, was, it was a good learning experience because um, it really wasn't, it wasn't particularly dangerous. Like my husband was on tour at the same time. This is before we met. And he was in Croatia. So I was reading the reports about Croatia. And that was actually not a happy mission. You know, people were actually shooting at you and doing things to you. Uh, whereas in Cyprus, no one was, you know, like the worst thing that could happen is, you know, you were drinking a fair bit. So you had to watch out, you know, so you could show up to work in the morning. You're in Cyprus and you're 26 years old and you're being harassed a lot. Can you give us a sense of your state of mind at this time? Are you still happy with your choice to be in the military? Yeah, I'm still having fun. Like it's still fun. And, and you have to understand there was no framework of understanding for this, right? There were no harassment regulations. There was nobody saying sexual harassment is bad in the workplace. There was nobody saying any of these things. I didn't know. I just thought it was annoying and pestering and the best the best thing was is to come up with a no touching no talk you know no touchy so i didn't do casual touching of people and didn't allow like i kind of tried to put a little bubble around myself um i tried to participate in things as much as i could but i kept getting injured like i i had my um sinus cavity and my cheekbone broken when i was in cyprus uh <laughs> you know so that was Ooh, that was interesting that I got punched in the face at a mess function. Pardon me? Yeah, wow. well, you know, but, but that, again, that's old army, right? Because that's what we did. You know, it wasn't unusual for fighting and brawls and, you know, it was all good natured. You know, you know, you know, when you see guys get together and they kind of tussle and, you know, that's what it was. Except, you know, um, one of the things, one of the guys I worked with, I learned a lot there because I had um, a boss that sat there and said to me, Hey, took me aside and said to me, you know what, you need to remember. He goes, how big are you? And I said, well, I'm five, five. And he goes, okay, so all of these people are taller than you. They all outweigh you and they're all stronger than you. 
So you need to stop trying to go physically toe to toe with these guys because you're getting hurt every time. And it's true. I was, and that was really good advice. Actually. I kind of, I kind of went, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think you felt the need to go physically toe to toe with these guys? This was my way of proving my worth, right? This was, was this all tied up in trying to make sure that, hey, guys, look at me. You don't have to be nice to me. You don't have to, like, moderate your language. You don't have to, like, treat me with kid gloves. You know, I'm just as tough, just as hard, just as, you know, I can get in there and tussle just like you guys can. And that's what I tried to do. I was kind of happy when that kind of world went away, <laughs> when we stopped doing those things. <laughs> It was good to it was good to come to the realization after about eighteen months. It didn't really much how matter, you know, how enthusiastically I tried, you know, and played all the mess games and everything else. Like God, it wasn't going to make a difference. Okay, so working with your Canadian colleagues obviously brought with it a ton of challenges. Can you give us a sense of what it was like for you to work with coalition forces? Um, I actually found the further in culture, like the more culturally different they were the more accepting they were of me. So, so I found um, the Greek and Turkish officers on the line. I, I had no issues with them. They were professional and polite and very courteous. The British officers and the American officers to work with on a professional basis were very difficult. They really struggled with me being there. And because I, again, I, I see it as it wasn't, I don't think it was me personally, but it was more about representing change, right? You're representing a change that they're really, really not comfortable with. You know, I had, I had an American officer explain to me, sit me down and explain to me very seriously why I shouldn't be in the artillery, you know, and how it could never happen in the U.S. because they actually like their women. They value the women. <laughs> it was just like, so you figure Canadians don't like women? <laughs> I'm Catherine Ross. Captain Nicola Goddard was my sister, and I'd like to make a request. Military service can bring great challenges and sacrifices. Women in particular can face unique issues. Help True Patriot Love and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund support Canada's servicewomen, veteran women, and their families. True Patriot Love Foundation is a national organization that supports the military and veteran community by funding critical programs across the country. Please consider donating today towards their mission at tplgoddardfund.com. No donation is too small. On behalf of my family and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund, we thank you for your support. This episode is sponsored by Mike Durland. Mike has been a proud supporter of True Patriot Love since 2012, and we thank him for sponsoring today's episode on behalf of Receptivity. So you've obviously dealt with so much in being one of the first women in the combat arms and the Canadian Armed Forces. I'm wondering if you might have some advice for other women out there who may be trailblazing in their own fields and paving the way for future generations. You know, there's, there's a price and there's a reward for paving new ground. And the best part about the reward is, is that, you know what, you don't have to conform to anybody else's expectations, right? You, you're making your way. You know, so the artillery female mess kit. I wore exactly how I wanted to. Who's going to tell me I'm wrong? No one, right? Like, it's like, yay, and I like this part, but I don't like that part. And I like this part, so I'll wear, you know. There's a reward to being the first, and that's not to be discounted. Um, but there's also a price, and you do pay a price. 
I don't think that I'm alone in wanting to thank you for paying that price for all women in the Canadian Armed Forces and across Canada. You've put up with so much over the course of your career, and I know that we've only heard a tiny fraction of the challenges you faced. I'm wondering how the challenges in the early years of your career impacted your leadership style down the road. So in good ways and not as good ways. So one of the things that, one of the regrets I have is that as a leader, I had opportunities where I could have been much kinder to people than I was. Not weak, but kind. And I wasn't because I was really afraid of being perceived as weak. And that was always something as my leadership developed because I had that early experience that if I gave any quarter, I'd be immediately branded as weak. You know, I had, I had bronchitis. And I went out on exercise in the field and, you know, finally became so ill, you know, I had to go back in early. That marked my early years um, quite, you know, as, as someone who couldn't hack it in the field. Well, I had bronchitis for God's sakes, you know, like, like, how is that a weakness? Anyways, I was afraid that, that, that people would perceive me as being weak if I was kind. And I didn't learn until probably much later on in my career. Actually, I could be kind to people. And it wouldn't be perceived as, as weakness. It didn't mean being soft. It didn't mean being lenient. But you could still be a good leader without being completely, you know, hard line and, and to be kind to be empathetic and to listen. And it took me a long time to, to incorporate empathy and kindness into my leadership style and being comfortable with it. Empathy as a part of leadership is something that's come up before in this podcast, especially in discussions of Captain Nicola Goddard. And I believe the two of you were actually friends. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Nika was one of my uh, junior officers in the regiment uh, when I was when I was the battery commander for A Battery, which is that small subunit that's a part of one RCHA, the larger unit. Um, she was one of the officers who worked directly for me, so I, you know, was there. I mentored all my junior officers, but you know, is you meet somebody and you click, right? And I did. I clicked. She was funny and warm and smart and and laughed at all my jokes and not just like actually thought they were funny, which you know was great um yeah we'd just tell stories and talk about you know i was i was always afraid that i I'd, I'd put the fear of god in having children because of course i had quite young children when i was commanding a battery my kids were uh one and three when i took over the battery and so i was dealing with that and you know all the all the fun and joy that goes with having toddlers and working full-time with a husband that works full-time and my you know i'll never forget my um we got deployed to the uh, to fight the forest fires in BC in 2003, and uh, it was a last minute deployment. We had to got called, and we were going 36 hours, and we were out the door. And uh, my husband was in Bosnia on tour, <laughs> and so I have a one and a three year old at home. <laughs> what do you do? So I called my parents, and they can make it up in three or four days. And I called uh, a babysitter and the daycare provider and everything else, and patched together this thing went out to the local can grocery store, bought like, you know, a month's worth of food, stocked all up in my house, you know, packed all my gear. My kids are looking at me with like the big, you know, little little eyes and they're like, what the heck? And it's just like, bye <laughs> and left. Well, obviously with the kids in care of someone else, but left. And I was gutted. Just gutted. I felt 
awful. You know, my kids have no idea what's going on. Dad disappears, you know, mom disappears, you know, you know, granny and grampy are showing up eventually, but you know, where's mom, you know, where's dad? And I was just that. And so Nick, actually on the plane ride as we were flying out to BC sat beside me and told me about her own experiences where uh, her parents were up teaching up north and they were doing all this and then she sat there and she said they're gonna be fine you know like look at me I turned out great and I'm just like oh yeah you, you did turn out great and I felt so much better but she spent like the whole ride reassuring me about that and and you know i'm like the senior officer and i'm supposed to be the one who's got it all together and i'm not supposed to be the one who's going like oh my god i've just scarred my children for the rest of their lives you know and here's this young woman who's what 23 24 just saying no it's okay they're gonna be fine i turned out fine and you know me and my sisters we were great and all this it was really that just shows what a, a great person you know she was such a good person where were you when you found out about her death Oh, I was just flattened, just devastated. It was so hard. I still can't talk about it without choking up. Um, I was at work. I got a call from uh, a good friend in Shiloh, Dave Poss. He, uh, he didn't want me to find out on the news, which was really kind of him. And uh, I did not believe him. He, he told me and I said, no, you're wrong. Like I was talking, I was emailing two days ago with her. Like we were just exchanging emails, like, you know, two days ago like how can that be you know no and then it sunk in and I was just it was really hard it was really hard but you know um she's gotten to you know I met I was fortunate I met her family and her family are amazing uh Tim and Sally and Victoria and uh Kate and her husband Andrew are marvelous marvelous people and they have such generous hearts that they have this loss, but they embraced everyone, everyone who knew her and felt, you know, it, she was just, you know, it was really, it was really, uh, they're really special people. And it was really um, so helpful to have them, you know, uh, embrace you and, and say, you know, let's, let's, you know, keep getting through this together. What does her legacy mean for you? Her legacy or the impact on me on my life was basically uh, making sure you don't know that you're going to die. I know that sounds stupid, right? Like, of course you don't know you're going to die, but like, you don't know when it's going to happen. And so you need to make sure you're living well right now. You know, you're doing all those good things right now, <laughs> not, not waiting. Like, don't, don't be looking around the corner or anything else like that. You know, it's not, it's not you only live once. But in fact, you need to invest in what's going on in your life. And um, it really reinforced for me how important having a good, strong family network really is. And so that's something I really focused on. So my husband and I did kind of a handshake agreement where neither of us would turn down a deployment to Afghanistan if we were tasked or if we were told to go, but we wouldn't seek one out either. And, and it, it wasn't because going to Afghanistan, but just, just because those separations and those time away from family is really a big hit. And we did, we did do a two year one where he was in, in or two and a half years actually, um, apart, living apart. And after that, we said, no, never again. It's just not worth it. Um, so family always has to come first. And, and that's kind of, not that I needed Nicola, you know, Nicola's death didn't, but it really brought home the importance of that. 
Thank you for being so open and sharing your experiences with Nicola with us. We all lost so much when Nicola was killed. Before I let you go, I'd like to ask what you feel the biggest challenge was that you faced in your lengthy career. I think the biggest challenge that I faced that was coming to the realization that, you know what, um, it really doesn't matter what I do, that there are a slice of folks out there who are never going to be okay with you being there. And it doesn't matter how much time has passed. It doesn't matter if the organizational culture has changed. It doesn't matter that, you know, this is now relatively mainstream behavior. Um, I think that was the hardest thing to come to terms with because the thing is, is it's exhausting, right? To, to constantly being on your guard, mm -hmm. um, to being in that defensive posture, you know, and when you let it down, you know, it, so, so I screwed up. I, I did, I screwed up big time. And what was really a revelation for me was how many people took advantage of when I was down, when I was to, to give me a good kick while I was down and how the people who I thought were my friends and who I thought would stand up for me, um, didn't, didn't participate, but didn't intervene on my behalf. And that was incredible because, you know, these are people I've known and served with for 15 years. Yeah. And I thought we were friends. I thought, you know, and I'd stood up for them yeah. or in my mind, I had stood up for them or I would stand up for them. And, and maybe they didn't see it that way, but I saw it that way. And I found that was the hardest thing to continue to serve after that moment, to continue in the military. And I did, you know, I, I stayed in for another, you know, 13, 14 years, you know, but I found it very difficult at the time. Cause I thought, you know, it, it, and, 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 and at that point, is it, you're thinking, is it me? Like, yeah. is it me personally? Or is it, you know, going back to that, you're representing something of change or how does that work? And I don't know. I still don't know. Like, I don't know. People go, oh, no, and it's, you know, it's not you. And it's like, eh, I don't know. Like, you know, I still don't know. I don't know if they didn't like me personally or if they, if this was, a, you know, an and thing right. or if it was, a, a, you know, you as you thing, you know, and uh, I found it really hard. I found it very hard. How did you motivate yourself through that, like to keep going? In all honesty, it was the people who worked for me that got me through that. Yeah. It was Nicola Goddard and Sonny Hatton and uh, Andrew Nicholson and uh, Howard Han and Howie and all sorts of folks within who worked for me. And, and it wasn't because they, they were cheering me on or doing anything special, but you know what? They made me feel like I was um, giving them something of value. So I was, I, was, I was mentoring them, I was leading them, I was coaching them, and I was trying to make them better, and they appreciated what I was doing. And that was the sense I got from them. I, I, that was certainly what I received back from them. And, and, that, and, and that's why RMC was such a great place to go to after that time, because it really, um, mentoring young people, uh, helping them step off on the right foot, you know, seeing young women who were going to be going into similar situations that I went into and helping them was mm -hmm. huge, huge. And, and RMC 2005 was actually the first time I had a female peer. Wow like a female, another woman at the same rank level, you know, with the same experiences as I did. She was a naval officer and it was such, and we were friends and we, we, we met and we clicked and it was like, yes, 
And that was amazing. You know, so it was, it was really, really, um, that, that's what got me through it. Like it, it, it that's what got me to stay in. You know, I, I was like, ah, I think I'm going to get out. I don't want to do this anymore. This is really, really hard. You know, I'm going to stick my 20 and then I'm out. You know, and when I say stick my 20 is, it means I'll, I'll stay in for 20 years so I can get my pension and I'll get out. And then I kind of, I got my, my groove back. It was great. It was a really good experience. And when you think about the future of the Canadian Armed Forces, how do you feel about it? Oh, I think it's, I think it's an organization that has, it still has some growing to do, but boy, we're so far ahead of other comparative organizations. And I have to say it's, it's such, it's so much more um, open, you know, and it's getting more open all the time. And there are people in it pushing it to be open, to think different ways, to look at different experiences, to value stuff that doesn't come from the military. And that's, that is a huge change. And, and people don't, you know, people now don't realize that, but it's such a huge change that, you know, that we would look at other organizations going, Hey, that's a good idea. Why don't we try that here? You know, that's something that was not the case at all when I joined. And that's, so I think the future for the Canadian Armed Forces, if it maintains this open um, space, this op open to new ideas, it, it, it really embraces innovation going forward. I think, I think we're going to be a very different organization over time as it evolves, but I think it's going to be a great organization and, and, and we'll represent our country. That, that's the most important thing. We have to represent our country. You know, we have to look like what the rest of the country looks like. We have to be a part of what the national fabric looks like. And, and that, I think, is, is where the Canadian Forces is on the right track, too. We're not quite there yet, but, but we're on the track. I think a lot of industries are facing this challenge, not just the Canadian Armed Forces, but hopefully our military is facing it head on. And my final question for you, Anne is looking back, knowing what you know now, would you do it all over again? Boy, you know, I used to joke that you couldn't pay me a million dollars to do phase training again. Like you couldn't. I, you know, like that's, that was a joke that we used to do is like, oh, do phase training and get paid a million dollars or just not do it. And it was like, not do it, dude. I'm never doing that again. Um, you know, I lost 40, 40 pounds in the first five weeks of phase training and I wasn't heavy going in like I, I was I was like a 105 106 106 pounds like it is like you know like half of me now <laughs> no not half of me but you get my idea it was like skinny 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 you know because all we did was run and push-ups and sit-ups and oh my god chin-ups I actually was doing chin-ups then it was like crazy anyways people would go yeah yeah lots of women do chin-ups and everything else but you know nonetheless I was um it was physically mentally exhausting. It was just, it just, you never got a break. Would I do it again? So would I do the training again? I probably would. <laughs> Are there things I would do differently? Yeah, of course. Um, would I do it again? Yeah, I think I probably, you know, knowing what I do now, it's so hard. It's like, uh, like, can I do it? I'd like to do a do over, but I'd like to do it in this army, not the old army. Does, does that does that work? You know? <laughs> but you helped create. Now. But you helped create this army. The army well, today wouldn't be it, what it is without you. 
Oh, I don't know about that. But but I, I have to say, I think I would prefer the new army environment to do it. And I think, yes, I would do it without hesitation in the new army, because I think the possibilities and opportunities are just so brilliant there. Um, do I want to go back to the old army? No, 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 thanks. That's not, uh, that's not a path I want to tread any, any time again. Well, thank you so much for being so candid with us today and for being so generous with your time. It was great having you on the show. Oh, no. Well, thanks very much for listening to me. I appreciate the opportunity to chat. and It's been a lot of fun. It was so great having Anne on the show today. Her story really highlights how challenging change can be. Her story also showcases how one person's career can really help organizations move forward toward becoming more inclusive and more progressive. And now I'm excited to announce that our guest for next week is Dr. Bonnie Henry, Provincial Health Officer for British Columbia. Dr. Henry served as a medical officer in the Canadian military for a decade after completing her medical degree at Dalhousie University. We discuss what it was like to grow up as the daughter of an army major and the role kindness plays in her personal brand of leadership. She also shares a few great stories from her military days. We'd be out in the middle of the ocean and some of the things I remember, are, you know, stopping in the middle of the ocean between, we're going from, um, from Esquimalt here in the west coast to, to Hawaii and stopping to have a swimming exercise. I always wore a life jacket because I'm not a great swimmer, but you're out in the middle of the ocean and you're thinking, okay, the closest land is a mile down <laughs> and, and the big swell would come and you wouldn't be able to see the ship and you can really feel like just how far you could be in the middle of nowhere. For Her Country is hosted by me, Shannon Busta. It is written and produced by me and Katrina Bolak. Our music is by Whiskey Wolf and Oceanic Piano. A special thank you to Catherine Rusk and the Goddard family and the team at True Patriot Love for their support throughout this project. And thank you to our episode sponsor, Mike Durland, on behalf of Receptivity. This project was produced with the True Patriot Love Foundation and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund. True Patriot Love is Canada's leading organization that supports military members and their families. It administers the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund, which was started by the Goddard family to support women in the military in honor of Nicola. To learn more about this podcast and the great work of this organization, please visit ForHerCountry.ca and consider donating if you can.